Welcome to the Christchurch Oceanside Podcast, a faith community on Vancouver Island within the Anglican Network in Canada. We invite you to check out our website at ChristchurchOceanside.ca, or if you're on Vancouver Island, join us on a Sunday in the News Bay. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor, Father Ryan Matchett. We hope you enjoy. Bless you. from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 7, beginning in 1 through 6. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to thee, Lord Christ. Well, welcome back to our series on Judge Not. As we continue our studies of the good way of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, as is contained in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as you can tell, we have landed here in Matthew chapter 7. And this is our part three of unpacking this text of Scripture. Now, I think the question we want to start with today is this. What are we afraid to lose by embracing Jesus' teaching on non-judgment? If we're really honest with ourselves, I think we hear this teaching and we go, yes, I agree with it. But then there's these nagging feelings in the back of our mind that make us go, yeah, but. But there's other times we need it, and there's value in judgment, and we need to make these decisions. I think trying to unpack a bit about what's behind that, how do we come to a place of like genuine, thorough agreement with actually following this way? Because this is the difference between knowing something intellectually, agreeing with it in your mind, and actually living it out from the heart. I think some of my reflection is that the reason we don't want to let go of judgment completely, not that Jesus is actually asking us to, but functionally on a day-to-day basis, is we don't want to be subject to or stuck with evil. Judgment's a tool we use to identify what is wrong, in our lives, in our homes, in our relationships, our church communities, 
and ultimately our world, right? Judgment is the, is the act of like trying to put your finger on it. What is messing this up? What's making me angry? What's making me frustrated? What's hurting me? What's wrong? But Jesus is really only calling us to lay it down because he is sufficiently carrying it. This gives us the peace to go, I can lay this down knowing that my value, my need for it, is actually being carried by somebody else. And in doing so, Jesus enables us to put our efforts to redemptive works, more helpful and transformative works. Pretty much what Jesus is saying here is that this is not the tool that you're looking for. Give me that tool, judgment, and let me give you some other tools that will actually be more helpful for what you actually need and want. Now, Jesus' next point here debunks the false claim that judgment is a necessary tool for us to passionately use for the good of other people. Because this is how we justify it, isn't it? We think, my judgments are going to help this person. If I could just tell them like it is, if I could lay it out straight, if I finally had enough and I could speak it, then maybe it'll create the change that they're looking for. What we'll see, though, is not only does judgment pose a threat to us, because we will be judged as we have judged. This is what Jesus talked about in the last session that we looked at. But it also poses a threat to others. So judgment just isn't a threat to us. It's a threat to others. So let's begin with verse 3. And as we do so, let's do so as though Jesus is speaking directly to us, because he is. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's or sister's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus' first question here is meant to stir self-awareness. Even notice the fact that Jesus is asking questions of us. God, the creator of the universe, is asking us a question. Maybe we should consider asking people more questions before coming to our quick judgments. But that's beside the point here. The question here is meant to help us understand ourselves. Why do I see the splinter in other people's eyes, but not the plank in my own? I need to reflect on that, and I need to start to become more honest about that. Why am I able to see the speck or Let's use splinter as a different word. I think speck, though, captures this idea of how small something could be in someone else's eye. Why am I able to see a speck in someone else's eye? The only way I'm going to be able to see that is if, number one, I've been asked to look, right? Somebody's having trouble and they're saying, can you help me see what's going on here? Or if I am looking for it. And now let's be honest with this whole parable, this analogy that Jesus is using. In order to see a speck in somebody's eye, you got to be pretty darn close. So if you're not invited to look, if you're not invited to help out, you are creepy close. Your equilibrium, your life is off kilter if you're that close to somebody else's face. Now, a few times in my life, I've asked my friends, hey, tell me the truth. Am I a close talker? 
because <laughs> I wanted, I needed some help to become aware of the fact that like I hate being close talked to. And the last thing I want to be is a close talker to someone else. This is worse than a close talker. This is like somebody is looking in your eyeball close. But it really kind of gets at this point of like, what's the question of our focus? Is our whole life leaned in to looking at other people? Or are we leaned in to be honest about what's going on inside? So some of the questions I have to start asking myself are, why am I looking for specks in other people's eyes? I mean, there's a myriad of, of reasons I think I've come to. Sometimes I do it out of false comfort because I want to feel better than other people. Sometimes I do it to build a case that will justify my feelings, my non-love feelings and actions towards someone. So I want to find faults because then that makes me feel justified in my less than love treatment of them. I think the next reason is sometimes it's to punish. I'd rather go over the evidence again and again than invest my energy into love. I want to think about all the things that drive me nuts about that person rather than think about all the barriers that are keeping me from loving them. I think the next piece, though, is sometimes I'm looking for reasons to disqualify someone. Maybe I've just run out of energy. I've run out of patience. I'm looking for an easy way out. So I want to find reasons that can let me just disqualify them. Maybe I'm competitive with them. So I want to disqualify them by seeing the spec. Maybe they just make me uncomfortable. Maybe it's too much personal cost and maybe there's just too many imperfections. So I would just rather be done with it. But I think the other piece, though, is that it's easier to believe that what's wrong in any given moment in the world, in family situations, in my church, whatever, in this relationship, is that someone else is the problem, not me. But what Jesus is pushing at is going, actually, the bigger problem is what's going on with me. So the way Jesus wants me to see myself and see others and see the world is through that framework. Other people's mistakes and problems are a speck. My mistakes and problems are, are a plank. I'm changing it from log to plank because using the word log over and over and over again, it just kind of gets old. So picture that for a moment. Somebody else has a speck, but you have a whole plank sticking out of your eye. Why am I afraid to address the plank in my own eye? Oh man, there's even more reasons here. I'm afraid. If I'm honest about the plank, then I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be disqualified. Other people aren't going to love me. I'm ashamed of that plank in my eye. If I'm honest about it, then people will think that's all of me. The plank is so big Ryan's only that fault, only that sin. He's one big problem. But also I feel responsible for it. I, that I somehow I have done something that has made this plank be lodged in my eye, or maybe I've grown it. But this problem is my problem, and I'm, I just feel so ridiculously guilty about it. Maybe, though, maybe it's a plank that I become dependent on. 
I depend on this thing. I've always done things this way, and I don't know who I am without it. It could also just be weariness. I've worked so hard for so long to change this, and I just haven't been able to. And if people see this, if they know the truth, my belonging is at risk. That they won't want they won't want me and I'll lose my place in this community. And then I think there's this kind of righteous indignation piece at the end of it. It's that I don't want to be the only one wrong all the time. So it's kind of defensive too. Now, whatever one of those things or more that resonates with you, the point though is this, is that whatever those reasons are, they ultimately result in us avoiding Jesus. What this comes down to is that there's an area within me that's big and glaring that I'm avoiding receiving the salvation of Jesus for it. Because it just, the sucker scares me, overwhelms me. Now we have lots of spiritual reasons why we focus on other people. Maybe we feel responsible for them. Maybe we're parents. Maybe we're trying to bring accountability to those people or disciple them and mentor them. Maybe it's just out of a desire that we're saying to help you, that I'm concerned for you. Or maybe it's within the church community. We're trying to keep up the standards. I had one friend who said, I have the gift of excellence. That's why (laughs) I point out these things in other people. But there's also good things that get kind of used to justify judgmental living, like doctrinal purity and safeguarding the church from heresy. There's lots of reasons we use to say why we should remain judgmental. But I really just find myself going, I want to submit to Jesus' teaching here. I know there's other sides of this coin, and we'll talk about those, but I'm not prepared for the other sides of the coin until I've accepted and given my heart and trusted Jesus in being non-judgmental. Now, politics is a whole other reason to be judgmental, and I'm not going to unpack all of that today. But boy, is that ever binary thinking. That the whole goal is to just identify that they're wrong and I'm right. And so it makes me judge everything else about them. Now, verse 4, Jesus goes on here. How can you say to your sibling, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? And this really starts to get at it. We often are engaging with judgment of someone else under the guise of saying, I'm here to help you. Let me help you with something you can't see. Let me fix that for you. And that's the nature of it, isn't it? I mean, the idea of something in your eye, it's a struggle because you, you can't see in there. All you can do is feel it. So let's, let's do this for a minute. Let's assume the best motivations for this statement for a moment. Because let's be honest, this whole series, we can't help but think that our judgments are necessary sometimes. Even as a priest... When I hit this point of walking with some, some individuals or couples or whatever, I often hit a point where I decide, okay, that's enough. It's time for me to give it to you straight and to create some change here. But it requires me to assume that I know the real roots of the problem, 
that I know what's going on in people's hearts, and I'm going to force some much-needed transformation. But here's the truth, and this is a bit of a confession here. I'm rarely right. Even if I'm a little bit right, my almost 20 years in ministry, I'm I'm convinced more often than not, I'm causing more harm and confusion, and I've got to back that truck up. It doesn't, it rarely brings about the healing and help that I think is going to come through my statements. So I often have, because then people are like, whoa, 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 actually, this is what's really going on inside of me, and this is where I'm struggling, and this is why this is happening, and this is where I'm really, really hurting. And I got to back the truck up and be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I overstep real quick sometimes. Why isn't this helpful? Because I'm not Jesus. I don't know what's in their hearts. My motivations end up being selfish often and impatient. And I often do it out of my own tiredness and frustration. Ultimately, I'm not their savior. And I can't create that change in their heart. And I'm feeling overly responsible when in actuality, Jesus is. The advice that I give in the Spirit, and I've seen others give, is rarely good news. It's often that at that moment we're telling people to get it together, try harder, and they just need to do dot, dot, dot. And they just need to listen to me, and then they'll, that will fix everything. Jesus, in these statements, is highlighting the danger a hypocrite poses to the hurting sinner. One of my daughters recently came up to me, which is surprising that this is the, kind of the first time that it really happened, considering I have five daughters. But she came up to me, she was doing her makeup. And she's like, Dad, I've got an eyelash in my eyeball and I can't get it out. And I'm like, well, you know, just rub it a little bit or try to pinch the top of your eyelid thing and pull it over and she's like no I've tried that I need your help so I'm like okay so she comes in close and I kind of pry her eye open because it's always hard to open your eye with somebody else there and I could see in there this massive makeup covered eyelash like this thing is bonkers huge and I said I think I just gotta grab it so I I went I quickly washed my hands and I come over I prior eye open again and I could just I had to like put two fingers in and pinch it and pull this eyelash off her eyeball now those of you with um contact lenses are going uh duh, this is what we do every day but this is not something I do every day and I'm not used to that but here's the reality about it having something in your eye is painful and it's super sensitive and the nature of the problem is that you're unable to just kind of get it out yourself. You need someone else's help. And often the first step is to go, you need to stop rubbing it because force isn't going to fix the problem. And then you have to trust someone else's carefulness, their ability, their cleanliness, right? Because they're going to put their fingers in your eyeball. And you got to let them come face to face with you in order to touch such such an intimate and sensitive area. The hypocrite, though, according to Jesus, has a plank sticking out of their eye. And what does that tell us? It tells us they're not careful. Either they've run into a log or, or grew it over time, like I was saying, 
or whatever. But this thing has existed for a long period of time and they have not addressed it. Addressed it. They're not self-aware. They won't even allow themselves to feel their own pain or their own discomfort. So what does that tell us about how they're going to treat someone else's pain and discomfort? They're also not aware of how it would impact others. And so that makes them not trustworthy. So they're attempting to initiate help to someone else who has not invited them to do so. They're not respecting them as a person or their own agency or their own personal space or their own intimate parts. So what's the outcome of such an interaction? They're inevitably going to cause more damage to the other person with their fingers and with the plank itself that is sticking out of their eye. They can't even see for crying out loud. So why? Why is it going to cause so much Pain? Because they're seeking to do the delicate work of removing something out of someone else's eye without the permission of the other person, without the ability to see themselves, without the experience that only comes through the removal of things from their own eyes. They have not done the careful, intimate, careful work on themselves. This is all an analogy of a reception of the gospel. The hypocrite has not done the hard work of faith to receive the transforming, healing work of Jesus. They've not had the experience needed to cultivate a gentleness and understanding of the inner workings of the heart and Christ's saving work upon it. There's a respect that comes when you've walked your own journey where you go, this is the hardest thing I've ever been through. And still Jesus is the one that ultimately did all the work. This makes sense of why the next thing Jesus says is this. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your sibling's eye. When you know the sins, the wounds, and the traps that have been laid within your own heart, when you know the terrain of your inner world, the highs and the lows, the dark places, the caves, the buried bodies, the skeletons, and the ecological disaster zones of trauma, and yet are seen the restoration and the dawn and the wholeness which Jesus brings to that landscape of your inner world. And you know the hard work that this entails of trusting Jesus in the hard places, in the broken places, in the sad places. You respect, you honor, and you tread lightly on the redemptive journeys of others. You don't presume to know because there's a whole story there that you've not lived. You don't presume to prescribe because you know Jesus brings about new life in ways you never would have thought. It's always different than we expected in our own journeys. Of course, it's going to be different than we expect in other people's. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. 
this carefulness, this honoring, this treating others' journeys as holy, it doesn't make it so that we never have these conversations. It means that we have these conversations without judgment. That's what it means. Because if we're walking in our own sacred union with Jesus, we know the value of hearing and receiving the good news from others. We know just me and Jesus, I need other voices. That what I'm hearing from Jesus, I need to hear Jesus say from someone else too, to me. I need to hear and see it in the scriptures. I need to hear it and see it in the form of our worship on a Sunday. I, I need to not be an island. And we all know, those of us who have walked the deep, hard journeys know if it was just me or my own, I would have been lost. If anything, this knowledge motivates us to have these types of conversations more often. But instead of reaching our capacity for patience and understanding and lashing out at people in judgment, we're instead in the deep places with them always having the conversations daily, weekly, and over the long term. Hearts filled with compassion, mercy, and love don't talk about sins, faults, and failures. They love those conversations. We don't just speak down to them as like, oh, we need to deal with this issue. We love those places. Those are the conversations we're looking to have. We're excited to find opportunity to delve into the deep together. We don't just talk about them. We talk to them. We're inquisitive, gentle, honoring carefully rebuilding and treating them as sacred and holy. That kind of perspective and love and motivation, what does it do? It draws out the poison. And I think those conversations come about with things like, hey, I noticed this. It's curious, isn't it? I noticed this. Can you tell me more about that? I noticed that this is kind of the emotions that come up for you in this situation. Can you tell me about that? Or we'd ask questions like, hey, how's your mental health these days? Rather than saying something judgmental like, why are you so depressed? Why are you such an anxious person? Instead, we're saying things like, how are you really doing? You haven't seemed like yourself lately. Rather than, what's going on with you? You have got to get your crap together. Notice the difference. One is willing to join. One is speaking down. One is harsh. And the other honors the person. As somebody that God has said loves enough to come for, to die for, and to recreate. When someone's sin is showing, rubbing, is abrasive, is creating messes and hurting you or others, we have the choice to respond either with judgment or as our Savior did, 
to stoop down and enter into it with redeeming love. Now, for those in authority, whether you're a parent, a teacher, a pastor, or employer, the way of the world tells us that the way to deal with faults and failures in others is through judgment. That they need to know they have done wrong, they need to understand the now or future consequences, and then we demand that they create change. Because in, our, in this world, success is paramount, and results matter more than people. But this is not the way of Jesus. This definitely should not be the way of the church. The life Jesus has cultivated, the life of Jesus cultivates the safest place in the world for people to be honest about their sins, failures, wounds, and shortcomings. Because the life of Jesus is non-judgmental, he can aid them in identifying the real root. Then the death of Jesus showcases the willingness of God to suffer, to suffer in, to suffer with, and to suffer for the consequences of their sin, but for their benefit. Through the cross, Jesus is saying, I'll shoulder the burden and fallout of this for you. But also, I'll help kill what's killing you. So Jesus takes that. Jesus is the sin eater, the suffering servant. I'll enter into the mess with you. So think about this as a parent. The goal is not primarily to point out fault, to threaten with consequences, and to demand change. For a parent in the way of Jesus, what we're doing is identifying the root problem through questions, through curiosity. Hey, I noticed this. Tell me what you're feeling. Tell me what you're thinking when you do this. Why? What do you feel about yourself when you hurt your sibling, when you steal? Tell me about that so that we can identify what's really wrong and receive the cross for it. There's so much consequence already in the air when sin is happening. We're bringing the good news of the cross to eat consequence. And then what we're providing our kids with is the hope that the resurrection of Jesus invites them and others to share and to grow into right action, into goodness, into right belief, into healthy emotion, into truthful thoughts, according to the scriptures, according to the good news of Jesus. We're saying to our kids, now that we've identified the lie, what's wrong, and the sin, let's receive the cross, and together let's pursue goodness. If you believe this about yourself in Jesus— if you knew you were loved, if you knew that you had everything you needed, how would you act? What does good, goodness look like? What do you want to be and do for others? This is resurrection life. And we're believing that Jesus is giving grace for change. It cultivates a new definition of life and brings them into it. And the ascension of Jesus then sends them out into the world to do the same for others, be incarnate into their problems, suffer with them as part of the crucifixion of Jesus, lead them to true goodness. 
The point of all of this that Jesus is saying, though, is that if you are honest about your own sins and you faithfully pursue a reception of the gospel for the things that are in your most intimate parts of your life, you won't have planks in your, in your eyes, but you will know how to deal with not only the own specks in your, owns through, in your own eyes through the gospel, but you'll know how to deal with the splinters and specks in the eyes of others. You will be gentle. You'll be careful. You'll know how the gospel works for you, and so you'll know how the gospel works for them. My friends, judgment is being reserved right now for the end of days and for the destruction of evil. These are the times of non-judgment to bring about the way of Jesus' saving power for our most intimate, hurting, broken places. This is the way of Jesus. And this is the way of non-judgment. And this is Jesus inviting you to receive it for yourself and to take it to the world. What this will do is it's the necessary building block needed for judging rightly, which we'll talk about next week. But we are not qualified to judge in the ways that Jesus calls us to share in judgment with him unless we get this first. This qualifies us to share in the act of judging rightly in and with Jesus. So my hope would be this vision stirs within you a desire to go, no, I want to accept and embrace and live out a life of non-judgment knowing that it will set you up to judge rightly. I pray this serves you well. I'd love to hear from you, uh, whether that is through our email to the church or if there's comment space on our podcast. But the way of Jesus truly is the good way. And I pray that you have faith to receive it, to follow it, and to live it. Amen. Thank you.